You're listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast with service members from across the military sharing their stories of combat and survival. And now, here's your host, Mark Zeno. Welcome into the Hazard Ground Podcast. As always, we appreciate you joining us each and every week. Before we get to this week's guest, former Green Beret, who uh, went on to develop his own nonprofit and also makes bombs. guess that's pretty cool. We'll get to that coming up here in just a moment. But first, our normal announcements. As always, please continue to follow us on social media, at Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Hazard Ground and Hazard Ground Podcast. Um, make sure you guys uh, give a like to all the content there um, as well. Share it with a friend. Tell us, uh, tell, tell your friends to follow us as well. Want to grow the social media following. Speaking of growing our following, need some more of those Apple reviews. Keep leaving them. Tell us why you love the show. Certainly appreciate you guys um, giving us five stars and, and leaving some comments. Uh, I, I read them all. I get them all. So I appreciate them all. It certainly uh, helps grow the, uh, the algorithm in our favor. As I've told you guys repeatedly, please subscribe to the YouTube channel and hit that like button, uh, smash the thumbs up and, and tell us why you love it each and every episode and leave some comments for, uh, each of the guests. We certainly appreciate that. Don't forget about our promotion with Amazon. You go to our website, hazardground.com. You click on the Amazon button up at the bottom of the homepage. It'll redirect you to Amazon. You can do all of your normal Amazon shopping. Uh, I'll get a percentage of what you guys spend. I'll donate a percentage of that back to some of the charities and organizations you've heard featured here on the show. So it's a great way for you guys to help out veterans charities just by doing Amazon shopping. Again, uh, holidays right around the corner. If you're going to do Amazon, go to hazardground.com first. Doesn't require you to do anything else, but we certainly appreciate uh, all the monetary support to keep the podcast going as well as our ability to support other organizations out there and veterans organizations out there as well. So uh, thank you guys for that in advance. Of course, as always, uh, go to the website, hazardground.com, and contact us. Any comments you want to direct to me personally, you can always do it there. I'll get them and respond to them uh, as, in a timely manner as possible. But I certainly appreciate you guys reaching out. As well with guest suggestions. If you have guest suggestions, it's a great way to put them in there. Anybody you know would like to be on the show, have their story told and shared with the audience. Uh, it's a great way to uh, to get us connected that way. So again, hazardground.com, contact us is the way to do so. All right, this week's guest is a former Army Green Beret uh, who left the military as a captain after eight plus years of service, three plus years in the Green Berets. He was awarded an ARCOM with V device for his actions in Iraq. Uh, he went on um, to work for Goldman Sachs for a year. So I guess that makes him very smart. Then um, he ended up getting a master's in uh, explosive engineering and worked for a company called Los Alamos, which uh, in sh the short term is he made nuclear components, uh, nuclear weapon components and, and helped develop bombs. Uh, he also founded a nonprofit organization called Sportsman for Warriors, who helps our country's warriors uh, through custom tailored support. Uh, in enrichments, engagements, and educational and employment opportunities. He is Ben Bateman joining us here on the Hazard Ground Podcast. Ben, welcome, man. Thank you so much for being here. Hey, Mark. Thank you for this opportunity. Glad no to be here. No problem. Um, uh, I, I guess I will start off with a bad joke and saying, from what I'm told, you're the bomb. Get it? See what I did there? <laughs> I'll show myself out. Thank you very much. Um, Great dad joke. Great dad yeah, joke. Now, listen, when you get to be my dad jokes, uh, my kids are eight, so dad jokes reign supreme because the ones they come back with me at are, are infinitely worse. Um, and I have to remind them how not funny they are. But again, different conversation for a different day. So um, look, a very wide swath of what, things that you've done in your career. There's not many people who can go from working at Goldman Sachs, for crying out loud, to, uh, um, you know, in, in wealth management to end up making bombs. So uh, we'll get to that journey in just a moment. But at the beginning, you went to West Point um, and you signed up or you got there in 2001. Was it before or after 9-11? It was before 9-11. Actually, I was okay. in Arabic class when the towers fell. So 
uh, as I like to tell people, I wasn't quite smart enough to get them the first time. So I went to a small uh, preparatory school in Alabama called Marion Mar- Mar- Military Institute. So I was fortunate enough to validate a couple courses. And I was in Arabic class. And I just remember commotion coming down the hall that uh, we were under attack. And everything changed from there. Did you did you always know you wanted to go to West Point? Um, I did. Well, I had read a lot. And so a lot of the – it was kind of a mythical place. And then I was in JRTC in high school. And um, I think just kind of fruition. I mean, I'd, I'd read everything I could about Patton. I read about Eisenhower, Lee. I'd, I'd studied a lot of U.S. history. And so I just figured once I kind of like became smart enough, I started researching West Point like that. Oh, it's an actual place. It's a college. It's a place I can go. And um, I grew up in a you know lower middle class family. My dad was a heavy equipment operator. My mom had dropped out of high school, uh, but she worked as a teacher's assistant in special education. So um, there was no, it was me. My future was going to be dictated by me. And so West Point was where I really wanted to go. Um, I knew I always wanted to serve. I always wanted to be a Green Beret. And then 9-11 happened and it just kind of confirmed my, the convictions that I had, had done my entire life. How did you know about the Green Berets as a kid? Um, I guess just reading a lot and, you know, like I was what, eight, nine years old when desert storm happened. And I remember reading about him. I remember reading about him in Vietnam. And, uh, I just thought that that could do, I could do all that. And, um, when nine 11 happened and, you know, the first soldiers on the ground, the horse soldiers, you know, famous made by the, the now movie 12 strong. Um, I just remember like I grew up hunting and fishing, spending time, in the outdoors, riding, you know, riding horses, things that set me up for success to be a Green Beret, I would say. Um, It's like, I can do that. I can merge 21st century warfare with primitive technologies with ancient warfare. And I just had the, had the belief in myself and I pushed myself and I made the decisions along the way that set the conditions for success. Yeah. You know, it's funny because I didn't, know about green berets until like after i was on active duty i just you know it was not <laughs> anything that was exposed you know again i i spent most of my active duty time was or all of my active duty time was um prior to 9-11 um and it was just something that wasn't talked about you know like it's not as out in the open and as public now and as cool now as it was back then back then it was just a bunch of really hardened warriors who uh who wanted to be badasses and and do it under the the cloak and silence of secrecy you know like it was uh now it's everybody's a green beret everybody wants to be and it's cool and, and everything else it's a different tenor to say the least yeah i mean i think it just it fits it fits a lot of that personality i think I, it fit my personality you know i i entered the army or entered west point as a be all you can be type of person and i just always wanted to push myself you know 9 11 happened um you know i was studying unconventional warfare or as my time as a cadet, I studied unconventional warfare and realized then it was dimes, right? Domestic implement, uh, information, military, economic, and society. So understanding that warfare is not just bombs and bullets. And right. So I decided to major in economics because I, it's a, it's a new t- technique to warfare. I'm not the smartest computer science guy. So I figured I could do more value with economics and numbers than, um, than I could doing any other any other areas. Now it's since changed to police, PMEC, so it's political, military, economic, social, 
industry and information. So just the different things. So like, you know, my, my approach, when you look at warfare, let's look at COVID, right? We shut down the world over something we can't see, we can't trace. And it's not like a firefight where as a commander, I can establish what like the, the decisive point, like if we overtake this building, the enemy cannot stop us. That's our decisive point. What's the decisive point on a virus, right? And so it's warfare. They shut down the world for a virus that 99.98% of the people who got it survived. That's, that's, that's unconventional warfare one-on-one and we, yeah. we fell prey to it. Yeah. Uh, again, a uh, whole different conversation there. I don't just, <laughs> yes. um, you know, uh, and, and look, don't even get me started. I, I ran a COVID, <laughs> I ran a COVID task force for the state here as a member of the national guard in Georgia. So uh, I get an up close and personal view of everything that was done and why it was done. And um, again, that's a completely different podcast, but to your point, you know, um, I, I think it's interesting because growing up in a military that was surrounded by combat um, and deployments and everything else, when you talk about the economic impact, I think that in and of itself, you know, sort of dictates, at least in Iraq, it did for me. I don't know how it was for you. But when I think back to it, now that you say that, it dictated a lot of the battlefield, right? Like it dictated the, the, 100%. the, the economic situation of any given area. Um, dictated the battlefield. I mean, look, you know. Well, look, look at know. our policy. Look at our policies, right? We had just, we had the debathification of Iraq. The <laughs> Ba'ath Party, which were predominantly Sunni, and again, my specialty in the, it was the Middle East. So, I, you know, I studied Arabic. I, I studied the Quran. I did all that. So I'm above average. I'm not the smartest guy on it. But, you know, that was, I was trying to know my enemy so I could be better at finding ways to defeat them. But we took the entire ruling population of Iraq, everybody who, you know, everything from running sewer plants and power plants. We're like, oh, just kidding. You go, you can't have a job. We forced people into terrorism. Al-Qaeda took advantage of them. They then paid them. And then, in, you know, I was there before the surge. I was there when a rural sheik woke up and said, hey, Al-Qaeda just threatened my oldest son. And, you know, in the Middle East and the Arab and Muslim culture, the oldest son's the, you know, that's the, that's your, that's your lineage. That's your, yeah, yeah. That's your heir apparent, or, you know, to, to use like Western, like the king, his first son, the prince is going to be um, his royal highness. He's the next in line. And when they came to them and said, Hey, if you don't start attacking the American form, which was economic because that's how they were paying the bills because we, the U S government and all of our wisdom stopped paying them or forced them out of jobs. How else are they going to take care of their family? How are they going to buy food? How are they going to provide? It's all economic. And they just said, okay, if we don't attack the Americans enough, then we're going to get killed by, or, you know, part of my family and my lineage is going to get killed off let's give the Americans a try. Maybe they'll pay us. We ended up paying them more. So it wasn't like General Petraeus's infinite wisdom. It was what Al-Qaeda was doing to change the battlefield, and they miscalculated. Yes. In Iraq, what happened? We went to war. I mean, you know, we'll probably get to it, but we went out and we went on a mission where the rules of engagement was, if they don't have a shirt on, shirts and skins, if they have a shirt on and they have an AK, game on to engage if they don't have a shirt on in december in iraq where it's cold it's they're one of us don't shoot them 
<laughs> That's interesting. I had a much different set of engagement. We'll we'll get to that. <laughs> well, that was for that mission, right? Yeah, changed, yeah, I guess so. Yeah, no. It's a quick mission to go out and right. link up with the the local sheiks and their their uh, guerrilla force. Almost as uh, again, I was I was conventional as an infantry platoon leader at the time. Yeah, and again, I, I think the bigger takeaway, you know, that you, obviously you never think about it when you're downrange, right? Like. I mean, maybe you do if you have some sort of key leader engagement with the local populace and the local shake where you think about, hey, if we can get some money influx in here, we can solve some of our problems. But even that is a Band-Aid fix. But in general, downrange, you're not thinking about how, you know, the economic impact of a certain area can can change the landscape of the battle. You're thinking about survival, right? You're thinking about accomplishing the mission. Well, you. I, I think it's – well, maybe you do. I'm not that smart. So <laughs> I just want to get out of there alive and take everybody with me. So I I didn't really have these kind of revelations until after the fact. Yeah, I mean, I think, well, again, you have, like, combat's not just 100% kinetic the entire time. Right. So you have you have downtime to think about stuff. You have those opportunities, right? And, you know, it starts with, hey, let's, let's approach, like, you always want to walk softly, carry the big stick, 100%, and ready to go kinetic and ready to take the fight to the enemy when that happens. But also at the same time, you're asked to pass out soccer balls and, and grain and chocolates and all those things. And along the way, you know, when you have those meetings and you sit down with the your subordinate leaders, your direct reports, you, you start thinking like, you know, in, in, the, in the sense of battle, it's like, okay, we're getting fired at from this building. All right, we're going to this next one. No, we're not mechanically breaching this door going in. Or, hey, the neighbor said this person's a sheik. We're definitely not going to do a hard knock on this one. Or, you know, you go to link up at a building and a guy comes out and yells at you. And one of your young infantrymen tackles him, right? Like, it just happens to be a sheik. How do you overcome all these things? So there's there's challenges that are, are thought. And, again, I'm not the smartest person out there. I'm not. I just I think about things differently. I try to understand patterns. I try to understand those other factors that can help us win. Well, it's thinking about the, the versus the symptoms, right? Um, That's right. That is, is critical sometimes. And I, my guess is that uh, young, young infantrymen who tackled the guys at an actual real story that seemed to, you know, <laughs> resonate. It is, yes. <laughs> we'll get yeah. to that. Enough. All right. So you're finishing up West point by the time you get out of there, what okay. is it? Oh, five. Oh, five. Yeah. I graduated May of 2005. All right. Uh, both wars have, have completely kicked off. I mean, just out of curiosity, from both your parents who came from very meek and meager beginnings, what was their level of concern of you now heading off to combat in the near future? I think they were definitely concerned about that. I, mean, I, I don't think it became a reality until fast forward. I graduated in May of 2005. I started at Fort Benning in July of 2005. Intra Officer Basic Course, Ranger School, get to my unit, and then I ship out in October 2006. So, you know, that's when it, that reality happened. And I think, honestly, you know, like most most people are, you know, it's a disconnect versus World War II where, you know, where Fords and GM stopped producing vehicles. This was just another day in the life, unless you knew somebody that was actually getting ready to go overseas or was downrange. It didn't generally impact. Like an IED goes off in Iraq and kills four people. It's not impacting the average American, unfortunately, because no. they're and they never get behind it. Like, but again, World War II, they rationed food, 
industries shut down and completely re- retooled to support the war effort. And it was an unconventional, unconditional warfare that we were fighting against the Germans and the Japanese. Did uh, did you ever have a conversation with your parents about it? I mean, you seem pretty cerebral, so I feel like it's something that, you know, uh, you would have sort of laid out very matter-of-factly for them. I, I mean, I talked to them. But again, you know, like my, my parents didn't serve. My will to serve came from my grandfather and my great-grandfather. Uh, my great, my grandfather was in the Navy in World War II, and I just always felt that that was me. Like, that's what I was put here on Earth to do. That's pretty impressive. Um, okay, so we're, we're leaving for Iraq in October of 2006. What are you told prior to going? Uh, well, up until about August of 2006, we were going to Afghanistan. We got back from JRTC, and, oh, yeah. just kidding, you're going to Iraq, or sometime around. Those are the good old days. That. Yeah, the good old days. So. <laughs> and uh, my battalion was detached from the rest of the brigade. We were sent to Ramadi, which was um, the where my battalion, so you know, long story short, the unit I joined went from Korea to Ramadi, Iraq, to Fort Carson. And then we went back, my battalion went back to the same fire base for fire bases. And um, yeah, so, and then the train up, the train up became, okay, I get it, but it's changed in the two years or year and a half since you guys left. There's fundamental changes. Um, I assume you're for ID at this point in time? Actually, a second second okay. entry, uh, two yeah, second brigade, second entry division. But okay. we re-flagged after that mission before they went to Iraq okay. or went to Afghanistan in 2009. So you never had to go to Camp Casey then, obviously. I did not know. Oh, good for you. Um, although some people said they enjoy it, you know, it kind of just depends on the personality and who you talk to. Yeah. So you end up in Ramadi. Now I left my first deployment in April of '06, so it was about six months before. You had got there. Um, and throughout the, all of 05, you know, into 06, Fallujah and Ramadi were the two worst places you could have been in Iraq at any given point in time. Um, yeah, Ramadi was worse. Just Fallujah was – the Marines want Fallujah, but the um, Iraq, the Al-Qaeda declared Ramadi as their capital. And, you know, if you study the history, it had once been the Sunni stronghold. It wasn't Fallujah, it was Ramadi. And I'm not saying that because I went there. I'm just saying that because of facts. Right. No, I understand. I understand. Um, yeah, it's the most dangerous city in the world. Yeah, that. that's why I was prefacing it. You know, I mean, yeah. I can remember being told to to go convoy there, you know, uh, in, in the early part of 2006. And that was when the pucker factor was real. That was the one where I kept my mouth shut. And in, in the back of my head, I'm going, please give this mission to somebody else. Please give this mission to somebody else. Right. Because I just yeah. you, you knew it was a different level. Um, it, it was the whole different level of of operation um and and level of enemy fighters right like they were just hardened and better and better trained uh there were more of them on a routine basis um and and it just it it made the whole entire lay of the land different so uh when you get there are you told what your mission is are you just securing an area what what, what are you just we were securing an area right we'd just fallen in on um everything that the previous unit the first the 506 from the 101st had been doing and and all of it was like man this is dumb this is dumb this this doesn't make sense like we we you know like we were merely like keeping roads open it wasn't we weren't taking the fight to the enemy we weren't establishing or very often right like it was more like this is like this doesn't make sense or 
these guys are compromised. I mean, the first one of the first things we did was we had no, we had an Overwatch position on the main ASR between uh, TQ Alpha Cobham and Corregidor along uh, ASR Michigan. And to prevent IEDs, we'd have one vehicle, you know, down on the road. We'd have another vehicle further down the road, and then we had an Overwatch vehicle that was a click away watching those two. I mean. We were lucky we didn't have what happened to the 10th Mountain guys where they overtook the two vehicles. It was just, the, you know, luck in some of those poor outposts that we fell in on. And I fought hard to change it. Were you successful? Yeah. I mean, eventually we just started taking the fight to the enemy. It, but it took, you know, we were we got in in the country in um, late October. It took a month and then... December rolls around and we actually, that's when we started going kinetic, truly kinetic. I mean, there was some stuff here and there. I had a guy shot in the hand before that, but it was all, you know, an un- unorganized element that's just shooting at Americans for replacing IDs. I mean, did anything other than that one individual happen? Was there any sort of ambushes or attacks that you dealt with that sort of predicate? Hey, we need to start no. taking it to the enemy. Lots of IDs. Yeah. Well, it's the flavor of the month. Um, <laughs> you know, it, it just, you know, there, there was no way to, uh, without, you know, uh, offensive operations, there was no way to mitigate those. Um, That's right. We were just reacting. We weren't planning. We weren't changing the status quo. We were keeping all of our bases open. We were doing all that. It was just. Yeah. And, you know, as some, I ran more convoys than anything else uh from baghdad to all, all over the country um you know within like two hours driving distance as far north as balad as far out west as ramadi and you know diwania matmadia all south of baghdad areas like that and of course you know with every single outpost in the city um yep. so i i understood that that the ied threat as well as anybody but it was just one of those things where um the unit i was attached with i was with fifth and tenth group at the time um yep over at uh, RPC and that wasn't their job. You know, it wasn't their job to go find guys. It wasn't the, the, you know, uh, CJ Soda's job to go find the IED in places per se, like on a routine basis, they were looking for more higher value targets. But in the meantime, running back and forth all over the damn country, trying to avoid all these things on a routine basis. So, um, you know, sort of impacted you. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Which is why, you know, that's why they sent me to do it. Less important guess, Right. Lowest guy on the totem pole, but no. And, and again, I I certainly understand that. So when you start taking the fight to the enemy, what 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 changes? I mean, how how successful is it initially? Uh, it was actually very successful. I mean, we went out into areas that no one had gone into, and uh, you know, during that deployment, sometimes it's months, sometimes it's years since anybody outside of just special operations had gone into the area, and then. You know, we were, it was a multi-pronged approach. We would go out, we would go after the highest level person we could, you know, we, and fortunately we had the chain of command that supported us. My battalion commander supported us lieutenants in, or us platoon leaders in, in doing our job and really taking the fight to the enemy. When we were in combat, you know, what we asked for, as long as realistic, they would push to us, whether it's Kimmler's, I asked for Moab's multiple times, got you know, denied that that was a minimum safe distance. But I mean, we got, we got everything you could ask for. Um, we did, but it was a balance, right? So for me, I hated being in vehicles because 
you know, me and a Humvee with three guys or five guys versus a bomb that's strong enough to flip an Abrams tank over and kill the crew, you know, it's, it's risk and reward. So how am I going to mitigate my risk? I'm going to carry a 240. I'm going to carry three 240s. I'm going to carry whatever the mission dictates. But in order to mitigate, I've got, you know, 30 guys on the ground. I got to know what air support I have. I got to know all these assets that I can push out to. I got to be dialed in on my um, pre-planned fires and, and then adjust because, you know, like everything, plans great until either boots hit the ground or first bullets fly. And then you're just adjusting to that. And, and really empowering my subordinate leaders to actually do their job. To that end, um, you know, you're a, for lack of a better term here, because I was one too at one point, a lowly platoon leader. Um, so there had to be some level of, you know, top down sort of, hey, LT, just go do this. You know, this is what needs, I, 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 you're not going to get this, you're not going to get that, but this needs to get done, go do it kind of deal. Yeah. Uh, did, oh, 100% there was. Okay. And it, but it was me creating those relationships with the other people with the fire cell with you know the different elements so that i knew what was on station right like i didn't get you know us conventional infantry guys we don't get all the assets the soft guys get pushed to us we don't we don't roll out with every all the assets stacked with all the fast movers all the aviation it's more knowing what's going to be nearby and when and then asking for it you know, at first it's like, well, how do you know this is here? Don't worry about how I know. Just send me the asset. <laughs> Don't worry about how I know what I know. Uh, that's what yeah. I get. For, right? Um, that's right. When does it start to go bad or turn in, in, a, in a different direction for you? What do you mean? I mean, well, does it start to go bad? I mean, it's, look, when you create offensive operations, the, the equal and opposite reaction is a, a force that matches yours from the 100%. enemy. Yeah. So I mean, so so for us is, is that first miss in, in December when we when we went outside of our pre-approved convoy road support, and um, you know it's like everything, right? Like whether you're training for mixed martial arts, I've been training for years to be a platoon leader. I just wanted to go out and get in fight with the enemy, and that's what I've been waiting for. Not in a bad way, not that I was changing things, just. You know, like, hey, this is what I've trained for. I, Ranger school, intra-officer basic course. I've done all the live fires from the, you know, individual up to platoon live fire and even some modified company level ones. You know, like, let me go do my job. This is what I've trained for. I'm in combat. I want to go take close with and destroy the enemy. And so for us, it was December 4th. Um, we'd been in, we'd moved, I think it was like December 2nd. We started out. Uh, we started this mission. Uh, we they took us down the road and then we walked. They they probably carried us what I don't know five six kilometers and then we just walked to our fire base. We established. We took over a, a big building that was on the road because it was the highest building. It's two twin um, three story buildings. Um, I had a sister platoon probably I don't know eight nine hundred meters to my northeast. I had another sister platoon element to um, like southwest or southeast. And then um, so the night of December 3rd or my sometime on the 3rd, my company commander said, hey, let the enemy know you're there. So it's Iraq. It's December. We're next to the Euphrates. 
And my guys are like, sir, I'm cold. I'm freezing. I was like, let's have fires. Let's have bonfires on the roof. You guys are out pulling security. Let's have some giant bonfires. And, you know, I get called on the radio like, what are you doing? It's like, your mission, your guidance to me was let the enemy know you're there. What better guidance or what better way to let enemy know you're there than having fires on the roof? Like we knew. And then and the next day, you know, we we went kinetic. So that's I mean, it, you know, it's, there's, you know, it's not like we're not doing control based operations where we're trying to hide out. Like if your guidance to me is let people know you're there, fires on the roof is a pretty big indicator. I was going to say, what was what was the proposed uh, suggestion and how you should do that otherwise? I don't know. Maybe it's patro- like patrolling out the areas, but like at nighttime when Iraqis are sleeping, there's no benefit that we're just, you know, we're just the devil. So again, you know, I can go in depth as far as like accusations made by other Americans about being called the devil Ramadi, but everybody who goes out at night is called the devil Ramadi. And when you speak Arabic, it's confirmation that, Oh, the devil was here. Okay. Shaitan is Arabic for devil. Yeah. Okay. Well, um, now that you have officially anointed yourself as the devil by lighting fires on the roof. I wasn't. I was, I was not the devil. But when yeah. we'd go out night at, on missions and then we'd go out, you know, the great planning, like, let's go out, capture this person. And then the next day we're going to go back out in that same exact area and we're going to pass out soccer balls. Well, shocking. Mom is going to come up to us and say, hey, the devil stole my baby. The devil came last night and stole my baby. They don't know that it was – they don't know it was Green Berets. They don't know Seals. They don't know it was – conventional infantry guys like myself at the time they just know some american gringo if you will took their kid even though but he's innocent just i mean same thing with watch fox news or watch any news that interviews the mom my son was innocent my daughter was innocent okay well i didn't show up and the soft guys definitely didn't show up to take over your your son they had a they had some intel that said your person your kid was a person of interest and was doing some bad things Right. Um, so morning of December 4th, once everybody knows you're there, is, yeah. uh, do they attack you first or do you have to go get them, so to speak? No, they attacked us. So it was, you know, it was one. So we had one turf, three platoons sp- spread out throughout um, this little area in Ramadi out to the east. So we weren't actually in the city. We were in like the, the rural farming suburbs of, of Ramadi at the time. And uh so I actually took, I got ordered to take my turb down to the company headquarters. While I'm down there, I'll, I, hear, I just hear shots. And I'm like, that sounds like it's over by me. It's like my boys are getting attacked. And um, so come to find out, one of my guys, crazy story, this kid, six foot seven. Um, he had to wait in Kuwait until he turned 18. So he gets in country like end of November, and this is December 4th. He gets shot as he's walking up the stairs. We had put, because, um, you know, we we got there like the night, but we'd been there less than 24 hours over a short time period. So we just put up blankets. But apparently they had they were able to see him and they shot him. So I'm like, all right, I get a call on the radio. Hey, uh, we, got a, we got a wounded urgent. So I'm, at, I'm with my commander, and he, you know he's trying to talk. I'm like, so I got to go. I got I got a guy that's gonna bleed out. I just got the radio call. You heard it too. I'm gonna go. I need the turf. He's like, no, you can't take the turf. It's like, all right. So I take my squad back, and I was like, all right. Well, we're gonna look for 
HLZs to put a Medivac bird or a Kazimac bird down in this air, in this, um, um, I think kind of like a, I don't know, cornfield to, to convert it to like, I don't know what it was, but like, it looked like it had been growing stuff there, but it was December. So nothing was growing. And on the way back, you know, like I'm looking, I've got my, I'm with one of my, my first squad, you know, and I'm, 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 I've got 17 different things. Like, all right, I'll right, oh, shoot. There's these, um, these power lines that were on the, like part of it. So I was like, I'm looking, trying to figure out, like, can we put a Chinook down here? How big a bird can we put? All right, if we can't put a Chinook there, can we fit a Blackhawk, right? Like doing the calculations for the size of the landing zone. Next thing you know, just get opened up on, right? And it was a pretty uh, intensive area. And so I'm in, I've got me in a squad. We've got two, like a rundown building, you know, there's a building and there's a ditch. I run to the building. The rest of my guys run to the ditch and they just turn the effort. And I'm not saying I'm awesome. They just turn the effort or the focus on me because, you know, I'm not, I'm a six, six foot two dude, but not because I'm the biggest target, but I had antennas on, right? And so in that time, Iraqis had learned that, hey, if a guy has a antenna for a radio, shoot that person. They're the target. And I, I was short. I was short man, so I, I I didn't have an RTO. It was me, my Ford or no, my Ford observer was at the house because it was you know stupid planning on my part to not take him, but it actually ended up being good. Um, and they just opened up on us. What we found out later was it was a uh, Iranian Quds force that that had attacked us nine to eleven dudes, um, and just got knocked out by an Abra asked for support. I was asked, we had a, a Harrier came on station, but his bomb was too big based on minimum safe distance. So all he could do was a flyby. I was asking for Abrams and finally got the Abrams support. They came down and, you know, you know, time, time changes, right? Fight or flight takes over. Everything slows down stuff that your ability to focus, like actual see things goes down substantially, you know, like, True combat. I'm asking for stuff on the net, getting denied. And so finally, I'm, I'm talking to Abrams. I'm like, shoot, shoot. Um, and he he got the, he had gotten the clearance because it was in the battalion commander 05 level decision. So finally, I'm like, because Abrams have a hand mic on the back. I'm like, I'm going to go up and see what's going on. I'm like, why are these guys not shooting? I, I jump out of the trench. And that's about the time they decide to engage and just that concussion knocks me out, knocks me back into the trench. I'm out. I don't know for how long and my guys come to, and or my guys come to me. One of my guys was like shaking me. One of my team leaders like, so you're all right. So you're all right. I'm like, ah, oh. you know, come to all. I can't see anything. Like I see stars. Uh, clearly I had a traumatic brain injury. And then, um, I can't hear very well. I'm like, I'm screaming, which was not normal me. Like I'd gone. So I'm like, all right, take a deep breath, relax. I just couldn't hear anything. So like me screaming on the radio was like, and somebody's like, sir, you're screaming. And so I calm down, get refocused. And, um, and then, you know, come to find out at that same time, they had attacked my sister platoon and they'd shot those guys. And so they had, 
uh, one immediate KIA, one um, urgent surgical. So they sent the XO with an M113 attract vehicle predecessor to the Bradley uh, came to my position because when we're walking, when we got ambushed, I was in between the line of fire between me and my squad leader. He gets hit in the, he got the force gump wound that shot in the butt. And um, so I, I got a guy in, in my position and, you know, I've got, I've got my, my platoon, the rest of my platoons up in these two twin houses. Uh, my platoon sergeant at the time lost it, ran out of our building because the two buildings were split between Iraqi army and one and us because we got an attachment like that afternoon they showed up or the afternoon, the evening prior, they showed up with us. He ran into the other ones. I'm talking to my FO. My FO's controlling, asking for assets, asking for support, trying to call fire on these guys. And uh, and then my medics, you know, talking. He's he's wanting to get to my position because we have the wounded guy. He'd already stabilized the other guy. And so it was just, it was a lot of chaos. And that's, that's what, what combat you realize it's, it's chaos. And, and during that time, I guess my actions merited uh, Arkham with V. I wrote up two of my guys for Silver Stars. I wrote up two guys for Bone Star with V. All, um, all of them were awarded and, it, and multiple Arkham with V is just people doing stuff. And I think that's what set the conditions for success of why I always felt the need to do more. And that's what helped fast forward what, Eight years, I founded a nonprofit. It was if I ask for something on the radio, they're going to send me that asset, and I wanted to eventually pay back everyone who saved me. I mean, I'm here having this conversation with you because others risked their life for me. How do you guys get out of there? Um, the tanks show up, start shooting. That helps. Uh, Harry, that helps. Yeah, and then they realize they just realize that like. Shit, there's like there's some significant force, and they broke contact. Yeah, um, superiority of fire is a is that's a, right. Superiority of fire, massing elements, all those basic comments. Yeah, it, it's funny how some of the some of the stuff I learned in ROTC, which made absolutely no sense at the time. You know, it, it made sense in words, but then like when you see it play out, you know, economy of force, yeah. and effort, all those things that absolutely matter. <laughs> Yeah, you know, when Abrams show up, when Harriers show up, you know, if you've got nine, ten dudes, you're like, well, there's a lot of firepower. I'm just, I want to live to see another day. And that's what the, the guys we're fighting did. We just broke contact. Yeah. Um, how did your perspective change after that day as far as, you know, somebody who said, you know, I just want to take the fight to the enemy and seek and destroy the enemy. Now that that's happened, does anything change in your mindset? Yes. You want to do it more, but you want, you don't want to be shot at. You're like, Damn, I don't want to be shot at again. Like once, you know, like advantage here every pop, time. pop your cherry, whatever you want to call it. Like once it's done, you're like, okay, if I never get shot at again, the rest of my life, I'm, I'm good. But unfortunately, you know, I did, but it's, you know, it was that first thing. And I just remember I had several of my squad leaders come up. I had several of my minus, you know, that, that team leader, that had come up to me, he, he became an acting squad leader since mine was medevac. And I didn't know the extent. I, like I was just focusing on orchestrating the chaos between Abrams and asking for stuff. I didn't know how bad his wound was. His other team leaders, Bravo team leaders taking care of him. Um, it was, 
you know, like you miss things when you get fixated. And when I'm doing my job, right, like providing security, establishing that cordon so that we can do the Kazakh, we can do all these other things. Um, like you don't get to see the whole picture. So like, I didn't know how bad he was wounded. I just know he got shot. I know he was, you know, like, I'm shot. Uh, you know, I heard those things, but I wasn't there like focusing on him because if I did, I was missing out. And I can, you know, I can tell you a story when I fixate on my, on the Kazavak rather than creating security, it, you know, it all worked out. But each mission, you just try, want to try to be a little bit better. Or like when we were cadets, we had General Halmore come and talk to us, of, you know, from uh, we were soldiers once and young, and now Fort Benning's named Hal, uh, Fort Moore. Um, he always talked about there's always one more thing you can do. So I always fixate on all right, okay, I did this. I established security. Now what? Okay, now can I make this position better? Or, okay, here we are. I need some air support. I only, I'm only i short on ammo. Okay, I'm requesting ammo. I'm doing all these other things. Or, hey, platoons aren't request ammo. Or, hey, I'm, what's what's our load? All these different things. Just do one more simple thing to just keep going. Because you want to be ready in the event. Like, okay, we established security. We haven't taken fire. What happens if they start shooting us again? Okay, now I'm going to start looking. Okay, where where do I need to put my machine gun? Where do I need to put my saw? Where do I need to put my 240? Where do I need to establish? So, okay, I think they're going to shoot us from here. Or, you know, I've got another element, and I maybe I have a blind spot and I have another element. Like, hey, watch this area. I can't see. Right. It's just adjusting and adapting. I mean, look, it's it, that's a difference. It's fun, though. It's well, fun. Like at, in the time, and while you're an infantryman and I wasn't, um, you know, when you get that sort of lull in combat, inevitably it happens, right? Like always you, happens. You know, the, the movies look like it's one continuous, nonstop barrage of, of <laughs> you know, it goes until everybody's dead, and that's when we stop. No, that that's not how combat actually works. You know, it's for what seems like twenty to thirty minutes, probably only five to ten, and then things just take a quick, you know, pause. Uh, for whatever reason, because eventually people just stop shooting at nothing. You know, if there's nothing there, people just don't waste bullets like they do in TV. And, you know, for whatever reason, there's only one clip, and yet there's an endless supply of rounds that keep flying out of the weapon. (laughs) Uh, Also, that's not reality. But uh, beyond that, you know, you get these lulls. And the difference, what I was leading to is between you and me, is that that one more thing that you talk about. For me, it's like, okay, just get your bear, like figure out where everybody is and what's going on and, and, and pause for a second and while I'm doing that, you're doing one more thing. Like that's kind of the difference, you know. And and, and trying to, yeah. Some of that is. And I'm true. not. I'm not saying I'm. I'm just. That's just. No, that's. I, that's what I embodied. But that's. That's. Well, I think that's. That was the difference between me and some of my other platooners. Is okay. Right. We're taking fire from here. We need to focus over here. Or hey, my tingly senses are going off. This isn't going to be good. Proactive versus reactive, right? I mean, yeah, you know, that's right. there's a certain amount. And again, my, and there's two things that are different. One, you know, you guys are, are taking up an active stance in a convoy. Everything is reactive. My job is to get stuff from point A to point B. I'm not there to take the fight to the enemy. I'm there to carry shit from point A to point B. So everything I'm doing by, by nature is reactive. Um, that doesn't mean I shouldn't be more proactive, but I could just tell you my personal experience again was get your bearings for a second, figure out where the hell everybody is and what's going on. Uh, and then I can finally think about, you know, the next step, which is usually yeah. get your foot on the gas. Yeah. But once you get through that, right, you do the after action report, like, okay, here's what I sucked at. 
all right, X, Y, and Z, got to work on these. And between now and the next time you're going out on that mission, it's like, okay, I got to get better at X, Y, and Z, but I did well on this. Okay. So I'm going to maintain these things. I'm going to maintain, you know, maintain calm, try to, you know, minus me yelling on the radio because I couldn't hear anything. Uh, it was just, okay, maintain calmness, take a deep breath, relax. Okay. Move, execute, adjust. And by then the way, next mission. By the way, were, were you ever tested for a TBI at that point in time or was just, <laughs> no, you know, we didn't do any of that. No. When I got back, you know, my medic looked at me, um, how many fingers am I holding up? <laughs> my medic looked at me and was like, ah, oh, you don't have any blood. You're good. He didn't, you know, he didn't, he didn't shine a light in my eyes because I probably would have punched him because, uh, you know, it, it just hurt. And I went, I went in my, I went back and I went into where I, you know, the command, command post. And I just told my guys, I'm like, look, I have this excruciating headache like I've never experienced. Uh, I'm going to take a quick nap. And my medic's like, that sounds like a concussion. I'm like, uh, well, I'm going to take a nap and drink some water. So, <laughs> no. always the, the catch-all fix. Just drink water. Everybody in the you know, and then you know, you fast forward and you're talking to the VA, and they're like, "How long were you up?" I don't, I don't know. Because when you when you come to and a guy's yelling, "Sir, you okay? Sir, you okay?" Like shaking you, like that's not my natural recovery to, you know, like so. And that uh, it's a frustration I always have with the VA, and I talk with several veterans about. It. It's like I I don't quantify like people who get knocked out. You know, there are vehicles that got thrown into the water. They come to because, you know, they're driving on the road, they get knocked out, or the ID goes off, they get knocked out, the vehicle gets blown into a river, water wakes them up, hopefully. And like in December, that water's cold, or January, February, you know, some of the coldest nights of my life um, were there in, in Ramadi next to the river in the winter. Um, that water's 35, 40 degrees, it's going to wake you up naturally. Like, oh, shit, now I'm in the water. Now I got to react. I, that didn't happen to me, but I had several friends that, that got uh, blown, their vehicles blown into uh, water sources and they woke up. So. It's, um, yeah, it, it is. It's tough to know how long you're out for. You just know <laughs> it is. And Most... I always say that. I was like, I didn't have a, hold on. I think we're an ID. Let me start my stopwatch. Yeah. Okay. Boom. We looked down at my oh, watch. Look, 17 <laughs> seconds. I was, on this day, I was out for 17 seconds. No, that's uh, you know, it's combat. You've got other stuff. And, and I got to start going again. I got to do my job. I got to carry my weight because I'm not a shooter. right? I'll, and I'll be honest with you. I never fired a bullet in combat. That wasn't my job. Now, did I clear rooms? 100%. You know, a, you know I'm, we got we're mounted. We got a mounted mission where some, some Bradley show up. They're like, hey, we're going to take you here. Okay, I'm track number two. Let the other vehicle out. Okay, got it. Track two. Hey, all right. All of a sudden, ramp drops. Me, my FO, and my 240 gunner, and it's like, shit, there's no one else around. All right, let's go in. Let's establish that foothold. And then wait for the other guys. Like, we established the foothold. Let's let them clear the rest of the house because the three of us are not shooters. But, you know, like, I did I tell people to shoot people? Absolutely. Hey, 240 gunner, that guy right there, shoot him. He's shooting at us. Engage. Are you sure? Yes. See those bolts coming at us? Shoot him. So... You know, a lot of people, some people say I was never in combat because I openly admit I never shot anybody in the face. I guess that somehow makes my combat experience less. I don't know. But again, society doesn't really know. I mean, I've had people tell me that the Green Beret program ended in, 
and now I'm and I was a liar. It's like, okay, man, like, okay, that green beret and the Yarbo knife and everything I did for 18 months, the Q course, I guess that was all just figment of my imagination. So, um, I, I, I always question those motives of people who try to malign others' combat experience. Um, and, and look, full disclosure, you know, I, there are some people who have been on this show because this show is about combat and survival. Like, that's kind yeah. of the premise of it. Um, who never really, you know, saw combat. And I'll, inevitably, I'll get an email from somebody saying, why'd you have this person on? They weren't in combat. And I'm saying, that, you know, look, in order to survive a deployment, right, there is, no matter how small your piece of the pie, you need the whole pie to make it whole, right? Everybody yeah. has a small piece of it, whether it's the mail clerk, whether it's, you know, somebody with food, whether it's somebody just doing laundry, whatever it is, all those things that it, it, it contribute to your survival on some That's level right. are important parts of combat. Um, look, I didn't take a bunch of my folks outside the wire for their own safety. I just said I, I didn't feel like they were mentally equipped to handle it. Um, and there were plenty of my, my, my folks who asked, can I go, can I go, can I go? And I'm like, well, let's find the right situation for you to go. Like, my, you know, um, and that wasn't to minimize their combat experience. It was to keep them alive, um, knowing what, what they were going to be up against down the road. So um, I don't malign anybody's combat experience. Uh, it's theirs. It's personal to them, uh, whatever it may be. And it oh, I think I think you bring up a valid point. Soft truths, right? One of the last one is soft force troop forces typically need conventional support or other support same thing right like my wife was in in baghdad at, at uh fob she was sending out speed balls uh, quick so ammunition resupplies to guys in the in the fight does that lessen what she did in combat absolutely not because those guys might not know it was my wife's unit that did it but you know what they did they, they request ammo they got it and they were able to keep engaging the Yep. And so it's, it's, you know, like a lot of people, logistics win wars, a hundred percent. Like you can go back to World War II and study, like what stopped Patton's advance into Germany? Fuel. Yeah. 100%. And in, and in Africa, it's fuel, right? So like to downplay, you know, and that's my big thing. And that was the, the big thing I always tried to push in the, um, in my nonprofit was like, look, I don't care what you did in the military because you raised your right hand and you did more than 99.5% of the population. Whether you were passing out towels at Balad or you were out closing with and kicking in doors and doing breaches and all this, you know, cool guy stuff, whatever, but just own it. Like, man, I was in the, I was a cook on the USS Enterprise. Awesome, man. I hope you made the best pancakes ever, but just own, you know, like own it, but don't try to be something you want. Like, yeah, just because you, you fed SEALs on one mission, that doesn't make you a SEAL. Just because you went out with the Green Berets on a mission, that doesn't make you a Green Beret. But so just, you know, be you. Like, man, I was, I, I, you know, I shot a ton of artillery in support of dudes, and I am grateful for that. Like, I am, I am truly grateful for all the artillery dudes that I never met that, that put bombs on target. It's funny you say that. You know, I kept a journal my first deployment. Um, and the last page, nobody's ever read it. I've never, I've barely even gone back and reread it myself. But the last page is the only thing I ever share with anybody. And that was some of the things that I had learned or affirmed or, you know, um, some lessons that I take away. And look, I spent 15 months in that first deployment on a B team, right? Um, of an ODA in the yep. sports center, handling yeah, all the company. Handling all the logistics for the the not only the Iraqi side of the house but the American side of the house and and 
yeah, I was in combat and firefights and everything else, but it's not anything that, you know, uh, separates me from anybody else. But one of the things I, I go back to say is that one of the greatest lessons I've learned from that deployment was the, the enjoyment of being a role player. You don't have to be the superstar in order for the team to be good. Um, I was a role player. I embraced the role. Um, I, I, I've said repeatedly on this show, the only reason I know that people valued me is because they kept asking me, Green Berets kept coming to me for more work. Yeah, I need you to do this. That's the only reason I knew that I was doing well is because they kept coming back to me because I learned very quickly. If I didn't, no one ever tell me I screwed up. They just kind of walk around you and keep going to find somebody else who could. And so, you know, I, I took a lot of joy and a lot of pride in being a role player. Um, and like you said, did I get taken out on mission? Sure. Does that do Would I ever purport myself to be a green beret? No, not for a second. I didn't do any of that stuff. So I'm not bashful. You about probably got to go. You probably got to go to the range with those guys or your, 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 who has got to go to the range with them and learn something. And you know, yeah. like no, the me- second and third order effects, you never know what they're going to be. Maybe some of your guys eventually, you know, tried out, raised their hand and, you know, did that double volunteer where they volunteered for airborne school and special operations. Or they knew somebody that did based on the, the conversation. So, like, that's how I started to treat. That's how, again, that's how I tried to plan missions as second, third order effects of like, yes, we're going out to cap, kill and capture this one person or these two people. But along the way, like, I don't want to do anything that creates more insurgents. And B, I want these people to think like, okay, we don't understand each other verbally, you know, Iraqi. Arabic's a lot different than the modern standard Arabic that I studied. But if I can communicate, you know, through body language, all those things, and, you know, let people see my eyes, then maybe they see that I'm not the devil. I'm not some evil. I'm just a person doing my job, trying to help them so that one day people like me don't no longer have to be in their area and they can open up the um, pharmacies and the, drink shops and the ice cream shops and the fresh food market, all those things. Again, they can go back to normal. Just how if I were in their situation, I would want, you know, red dawn type of situation here in America. I would want to, you know, fight to protect my family and then get back to how it was before. All right. So you get back from that deployment. Uh, yeah. Obviously you have more time uh, as a, as a PL with the infantry. What do you get back sometime yeah. in 07, I assume? Late 07. Yeah, we got back in December, 2007. Um, at what point in time does assessment selection work its way in? Did you know, were you predetermined that's where you were going? Um, yeah. So, so uh, this is a, this is a thing of having a, always getting a good partner in life. And the person you marry is the most important thing. So after I got back in December, I mean, I was burnt out like 15 months, almost 15 months, you know, kinetic, a lot of it going on, you know, I lost two of my guys, um, which was the darkest point of my life right after that kind of re- had to reset myself and, you know, just my wife had another conversation. So I think my packet was due sometime in January. I think Jan- maybe let's just say January 31st, whenever it was um, of 2008. And I was like, man, do I do it? Do I do it? And she's like, this is what you've always wanted to do. Like apply, they don't select you. Great. Then at least you can't go back, look back, and I, I was kind of with long term. So really, she was taking my words, something I'd said to her and flipping it and saying it to me. That sound, you know, it sounded different because it was coming. From, you know, it's like, OK, great. You're tired. Go out, you know, try out because you'll have regrets later if you don't. And so I 
you know, I applied, I, I started running again and, um, I applied and then fast forward June of, of 2008, I'm, I'm at selection at special portion assessment selection. Uh, we have the guy die due to, uh, he casually, but they say it was a snake bite. Uh, and you know, there was some of us in there. We hadn't had water for, they'd taken our water away. We'd been out doing land nav guy has a heat exhaustion succumbs to it because i mean they hadn't run selection in june for a reason for several years because it's hot and then you know we'd been up for three four days so they're like well we don't really know you know it, it seemed like they were just figuring stuff out they're figuring out the two-week selection course they're figuring out summer like how do we overcome heat casualties all these things and then fast forward guy dies and then you know we don't have rank right we have a roster member it's roster member six nine we have white engineer tape sewed on Ross number on there and you know Kadri comes like all right let's go look for this dude and you know someone's had to step up and be like hey sergeant look I'm gonna break rank I'm a commission officer in the United States Army um we haven't had water and everybody here's out of water like I get it we're looking for one of our brothers who's lost out there on the on the Q course but if you don't get us some water we are going to have more people and you know fortunately the cadre we had was like Shit, you guys don't have water so stuff just started trickling down right and it's, you know and it just kind of confirmed everything i've ever done of like if you don't ask the answers no and did i have to bring rank i mean i could have went up but you know being me i just felt that me and another uh officer one of my classmates from west point went up and we broke rank and said hey look yes i'm not i'm first lieutenant promotable ben bateman whatever get us get my guys water i'm seeing issues of heat the impacts of heat and if we're going out for undetermined time like i don't want these guys to succumb to uh heat heat related issues and they got us water and they started i think it it kind of woke people up but doing the right thing yeah caught, like did it cost me anything i don't know maybe they're like oh shit this person's willing to Maybe I got selected simply because of that. Not saying I'm awesome. Just I didn't quit. Well, again, um, there's two sides to that coin. Like you said, some people will say you should broke rank. Doesn't matter what it is. You know, those are the rules. You learn need to learn to follow. Them. Other people will say, right thing is the right thing, and you do the right thing. <laughs> the right thing is never hard. Um, so breaking sometimes rank. it is. Sometimes yeah. it's hard, and as you know leadership's a lonely island sometimes when you're by yourself you're just stuck there and you know like and a quick story like i remember like we'd get back from the mission we'd do clean weapons shower whatever prepare and it's like all right i don't have a mission plan tomorrow or we're gonna go on fob security or we're we're about to go on mission platoon nothing hard i'm just gonna relax right like i'm gonna go hang out with the boys for a little bit I'd walk in there and, you know, I'd play, they'd be playing Halo on Xbox. And like, so you want to play? And I'd play a little bit. But about 10, 20, 30 minutes in, they'd be like, he's still here, right? Like, I was, uh, it was just different. Like, I was me with the guys. The sa- but the same guys, I had no heart, no issues saying, like, hey, go in that room. We're taking fire from the building. Get your ass in there. Close with it. Destroy the owner. But I would have done the same thing. I just was, that was their job. I was doing my job orchestrating the chaos yeah um once you finish um assessment and selection you head off to the q course uh, how, well they were 
right. the army was dealing with the backlog of the surge and the impact that it had. So I actually had six months back at Fort Carson waiting for the next captain's career course. So I just got back and, you know, nursed my wounds, recovered from selection, recovered from, you know, the, the trauma on the body. I mean, I, for like two, three weeks, I only swam because my body was just tired and it just hurt to walk. And so I, I would, my PT was swimming and then trying to get back into shape. And then my unit's gearing up for, to go to Afghanistan. I'm, I'm a quitter cause I'm leaving the infantry. I become the battalionist one because they wanted to punish me and make me change my mind, which didn't work, but whatever I, I you know, I'm committed. I'm going to punish you to change your mind. Yeah. That, That's because- right. If you were, if you change your mind, you can go be the AS3, like hard pass. I'm like, mm, no. And then, uh, and then, um, yeah. And then, so I wait six months and I, I work a job and then I got to do some OJT with 10th group since I was at Fort Carson. So it was a, it was a pretty fun. I got to go, you know, kind of see, see what it's like on a, on an ODA before I've gone through a Q course. Spent a couple months in language school. I didn't, I got a zero plus zero plus, so I had to do all of the six month language course. Um, I volunteered for Arabic. Didn't you already take Arabic? I'd taken two years of Arabic at West Point, but it, I mean it was rusty. And then in I, when I was in Iraq, it was just confirmation. I was like, man, my Arabic sucks. <laughs> Even though I was trying to use it, but <laughs> again, it's a different dialect. It, 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 listen, understand. I I picked up a ton of it over the course of a year. Yeah. Like I was able to get through meetings with my Iraqi soldiers for the most part on my own, um, which was good. But, you know, the one time I left my interpreter was the one time I got into the shit and needed an interpreter. So uh, my (laughs) my Arabic was was good enough to tell them, get us the fuck out of here. And that was about it. Uh, (laughs) But anyway, I I digress. So uh, once you get to group, where do you end up? I went to a third group, so uh, Married Army Couples Program. My wife PCS to to brag. Um, she was going to do the Civil Affairs Program and Married Army's Couple Program. We just spent 22 months doing the whole Geo Bachelor, or as I like to tell people, the National Guard marriage, one week in a month, two weeks a year. Ah, um, so, like, we wanted we wanted to be together. My wife had decided that she she will, so she was supposed to go to Sapper School and then Sear School. Well, the army back flipped that, and she went to Sear School. So her body was completely broken down. She graduated Sear uh, C out of uh, Fort Rucker, Alabama, and then four days later, she starts at Sapper School. You know, grueling, physically challenging course. I'm not a graduate of Sapper School. I went to Ranger School, and uh, but I know what they do is you know physically challenging, and I know the five mile run, like 48 hours after I finished my time in the box at Sear School, was some of the most challenging things. So it went all the way up to the G1 of the army who said, Nope, Ben, you're, uh, if you want to be cohabited with your wife, you'll switch to third group, even though the 10th group commander had found my wife a job and all the army had to do was release her and my PCS, uh, entitlements would cover, but you know, everything happens for a reason. So, yeah, I, I guess so. Um, <laughs> I, it's fun. I tell this to everybody who mentions it. Uh, Sear School is the one school in the military I wish I had gone to. I didn't know about it until I had deployed to Green Berets. I would, if they would send me now, I'd go. It's the one school I just want to yeah. go. It uh, is. It, it's a phenomenal school, and everything you have is, you know, some of the most professional 
best instructors I ever had. And I, I had some phenomenal instructors. Just the challenge that you have is that 800 pound gorilla, like I'm going to be a POW for, you know, three days. And so it's trying to get everything you can out of, out of that and still remember it knowing you have um, that fun at, uh, resistance lab at the end. But yeah, no, hundred percent. It was, it was one of the best courses. And you know, I always tell people, if you don't know who you are coming out of ranger school or you don't know who you are coming out of challenging leadership courses, you will know who you are coming out of SEER school. Yeah. You, you'll know who pushes you. They'll find ways to break you. They'll, you know, your weaknesses will come out. It, and it's just, it's a, it's a truly phenomenal course to, to know you. I wish they would send everybody to it, to be honest with you. I, you know, I, I, I right there with AIT, just do yeah. it. I felt I felt the same way. Obviously, that would I think it it's great on paper. I mean, I was in uh, Ranger School when when General Casey was the chief of staff of the Army. When you know that time, he's like every officer needs to go to Ranger School. Well, that's great, but logistically, how do we make that happen? Because we can only train so many hulas, which means infantry guys aren't always going to get the chance. The infantry lieutenants are expected to show up at certain units with that tab with that piece of cloth won't get a chance because other branches, right? Like in my squad, I had quartermaster, I had transportation officers, I had other things, but did they need it? hundred percent. Could those skills that they did save lives? Absolutely. But when, when I'm looking at my peers that are infantry who are expected to show up with that tab and they don't get a shot because, you know, there's 550 people competing for 300 slots or whatever it is you know, then they have to show up and then they're going to be treated as a second class sit, uh, officer until they get a chance to go back to ranger school. So it's that balance. But same thing with SEER school, like who needs it? Combat arms guys, soft, but could it, the army benefit if every single person went? Absolutely. I, I 100% agree with your, your thoughts there. When you get to third group, uh, what is, uh, what's your job there? I mean, uh, how long is <laughs> What do they make you do? Yeah, so I got a. I, I showed up. I got to be the rear D commander for third battalion, third group for a year. So not not my dream assignment, but I I learned a tremendous amount from the sergeant major that I had. That was uh, getting med boarded, and the the couple of E eights and E sevens that you know just either were recovered. I mean, my HHC rear D uh, sergeant major was a sergeant first class. He had just had a brain aneurysm like six months prior, and and they put him in responsible for the HHC property book. So imagine the stress and the impact it had on this guy. So you just, you see things and then, you know, like you, you build relationships and you've got your undermanned and try to make everything happen. So I think kind of that like craftiness, do one more thing that we talked about earlier was the same thing. Like, Hey, I'm not downrange, but I'm going to support these, these guys to the best of my ability. I'm going to talk with the wives. We have, we had meetings. I'd talk about post-traumatic stress I got read on to a program so I could talk to a guy who was getting ready to go on his 11th appointment on as a, uh, he was the team sergeant of a specialty team and like it just broke him. And so, you know, like all these things, you know, again, everything I've done in life, I continue to like take. And if I can apply that skill set, I use it in other things. And a lot of that time on rear D, I utilized both to heal myself but also to help heal other warriors. And that's, those are what set the conditions for success for founding my nonprofit. 
we'll get to that. I know you get one more deployment um, with uh, with the Green Berets, right? As a yeah, team. yeah. So it was a non. It was a non. It was outside of Afghanistan. We were prepping for the eventual withdrawal of Afghanistan, and um, it was. In, uh, I'll just tell you flat. I was in Tajikistan, but my myself and another captain, we came up with the, kind of like the regional long term plan because if you study that area when the Soviet Union fell and they pulled out of the the stands of Afghanistan, Tajikistan, Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan, Turkmenistan, uh, Kyrgyzstan, Turkmenistan, those six stands, um, that it went into a civil war afterwards. Like most of the nineties was a civil war in those countries. And so we wanted to help prevent that from happening. And so coming up with a long-term strategic plan uh, is a, is pretty awesome. And then, you know, the people we, the people we were training with, uh, it was, it was a fun mission, right? Like it wasn't a kinetic mission, but at the same time, it was, it's equally as important. So, uh, never downgrade. Like I, I like to remind people when they start talking about Marcus Luttrell and Lone Survivor, uh, what, what's never mentioned is that there was a Green Beret team that did an assessment on that village and they had a good list and a bad list. And when, uh, Muhammad, whatever, made a call to the Americans and said, Hey, I've got, I've got an American seal. Come get him. What's your name? Oh, oh, he's on the good list. Yeah, let's trust him. That was Green Berets that validated it. So it's, you never know what those second, third order effects are going to be. But Mark's trails alive today because some Green Beret had met with this dude and gave him the thumbs up. And when he made the, when he made the call, you know, Americans sent everything they could to go get him. Yeah, Muhammad Gulab, I think was his Muhammad name. Muhammad Gulab. There you go. All I can remember was Muhammad. But that's, you know, like 80% of the Middle East, anyways. <laughs> it's the most common name ever. Just ask McLovin. Uh, anyway, but um, we digress. So I'm just kind of curious. I'd be remiss if I didn't ask. You, you worked on this this exit plan for Afghanistan only for, you know, nine, ten years later to watch it be fubard. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it was hard. Uh, yeah, I was going to say uh, that must it's have- very hard. And one of my buddies from the career course was that Marine battalion commander that lost his what, 13, 12, 13. Really? It was, it, it was a shit show. Like if, if I could go back to anything, they, you know, one thing I'd do that. I'd be commander in chief for one day. And we know, you know, like I know the terrain of Afghanistan. I studied Afghanistan. I just never had the opportunity to go there. I studied the people. I read, you know, the graveyard of empires. It was where Alexander the Great forces ended and most of those people i mean if you think the gans aren't um a warrior force you're wrong they are they are better they are more lethal engaging with precision fire than iraqis are so it's a it's a different one but again it goes back to we failed we afghanistan kept going because we picked a team much like iraq and other tribes kept fighting us because we weren't giving them money. They weren't getting a cut. You know, we support the Northern Alliance. You know, we could have our own podcast on that, but we had an opportunity to completely decimate the Taliban as they were going from, just like we could have done that in Iraq when the ISIS uprising, but as they're in this mountainous valley, you put a couple, you know, fighter pilots in F-16s, F-15s, they're in a valley, you cut off the lead vehicle and the rear vehicle, and then you just send in the bombers and just let them annihilate them. There's no threat in Afghanistan. There's no Taliban presence that undermined. And guess what? The Americans, our brothers and sisters who lost 
um, their brothers and sisters over there, they, w- they wouldn't be feeling bad right now about like, just like us Iraqi veterans felt in 2014 when we felt ISIS. They wouldn't have this burden of like, what, why did I, you know, why did I either, A, why did I survive or was it worth it? You know, that, and it gets into more of that moral element of PTS, not as, not as bad as like the Vietnam brothers and sisters that got spit on and called baby killers, but it's pretty close up there. Yeah. Um, I, I will get to the sort of moral part of this in a minute here. Um, I'm curious uh, when your time at the, you know, in the military ends, or at least in the Green Berets, I, sh- I should rephrase it. How did you know you wanted to be done? Was it a, um, thing? Was it a wife thing? Was it just, or you had? It was, it was all the above. So I went to um, just, I went to uh, one of my best friends who was the other captain with me on the deployment. His dad died while we were doing the outreach down at Soxent. And I went to his funeral. You know, like this guy was like a, a second father to me. I learned a tremendous while I was at West Point. I'd go up, I'd spend time and just like seeing him interact with my friend and his kids. Like I learned a tremendous amount from him. Um, and he died. And, it was, and my grandfather had died on that deployment. My wife had a miscarriage on that deployment. All these things, like subconsciously, I was going to the funeral and it, it was to support my best friend, one of my best friends. But it was for me too. It was a, it was a closure of um everything that happened on that deployment and you know i got in trouble for it and then uh, my wife's um office mate who eventually became her boss while she was uh, uh he he worked in a special mission unit and he told me i should try out and so i started working out again after that deployment and uh one of my cadre from the q course my assignment first class was responsible for the team or platoon, whatever you want to call it, um, motley crew of Q course students. Um, he saw me working out one day. He's like, you you these issues you have are from traumatic brain injury. It's not, you're out of shape. So he, he kind of followed me for like three weeks and every day it was like, sir, you have, you have treat traumatic brain injury. Your, your issues that you're struggling with, it's not, you're out of shape. He just kept doing that over and over for like three weeks. I'm like, fine, sir. And I'll, I'll go to the traumatic brain injury clinic. And uh, so I went to the clinic at uh, the whatever interview to see if I had traumatic brain injury from uh, combat. And they, I said, Hey, you know, I did all the tests. Like, yep, you have traumatic brain injury. And I was a in outpatient for eight months, just doing everything, all sorts of torture, learning about things, but it was a good, it, it woke me up to show that like all the, the issues that I had, that's where it came from like quick story at q course you have to do pull-ups after like a i think it was like a six or eight mile i don't know the sh- the the long run of six seven eight miles i don't remember exactly how long it was um but i remember i was like we had to do pull-ups and i'm just sitting there waiting and like i'd stand up i get dizzy and sit back down so finally it gets down to where the q course cadre like hey all you quitters just get up get your zero pull-ups so we can non-select you and get on, go on your way. And so I'm like, all right, well, you know, and the mental, I'm like, I overcame it. I stood up, knock out like 17, 18, I don't know. Marines always say it's weak, but whatever. After like four days in the Q course, like 17, 18 pull-ups was, was pretty good. And, uh, and the kids are like, 
Rest number 69, what's wrong with me? Nothing, sorry. I guess I just need some water and some, some recovery after that run. But going back, it's like, oh, well, I have Meniere's syndrome. And my vestibular system, the balance system in my ears was destroyed. But all that makes sense now, right? And so it, 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 I got to reflect on those things. And then I turned down a med board and I just wanted out. It was just, I was tired, I was burned out. I, you know, I, I put my heart and soul into this and I knew that um, it just, like I w- if I were to go back and be on a combat team, I'd be a um, I'd be a distraction or I'd be a I'd be a liability. I wouldn't be an asset. And so it was just time to get out. And, and then I started uh, doing open source intel or doing the SF thing to find ways. That's how my wife and I got jobs at Goldman Sachs when we left the army. Wow. Uh, by the way, I didn't find out about my TBI until about 15 years after. I was having the yeah. same. I thought my dizzy spells forever were just lack of hydration. Yeah. Well, I, I was like, man, I'm just like, I was in the top 1% of my class physically at West Point. Like I, I was fifth, right? Like I, I had the mental fortitude to keep going. And then I was saying, no, just, I've always, it's just who I was. Like I could just push myself when my body's saying, no, I'm like, all right, let's just pass this person. Let's just pass this person. And I would do that on runs. Um, but it started being like, okay, you're out of shape. And then I would look at like what my scores, you know, like on an APFT or five mile run, I'm like, but I'm not out of shape. I'm in phenomenal shape according to all these things, you know, hitting personal records on, on uh, different ex- exercises and like, okay, maybe there's something else. And that's when all that other stuff fi- it finally came to realization. So it's, it's hard, you know, like, you don't like, I, it's a hard time admitting. I mean, I openly admit that to people. They're like, oh, you know, some people, same people might call me a pussy, whatever. I don't care. Like, I'm, I have these issues and I get to live with them for the rest of my life. Parts of my body are 80, 90 years old and I'm, I'm 41. So I'm okay with that. I, I've adapted to my new 100%. Know the feeling. I'm uh, heading for my third last four years. So yeah. uh, I've, I've done enough damage to my body to uh, ask for a new point, but. Uh, enough on me. So you go to the civilian world. Uh, how much transition was that for you? It was a shock, right? And uh, like, I come from being a uh, a Green Beret, a detachment commander. You know, I, I was a senior American Grand Force commander in a country for six months. And then fast forward, I show up at Goldman, and they're like, "What do we do with this guy? Go, hey, you go hang out with the uh, with the new." and college grads just go figure it out learn from them I'm like okay so i'm there um and you know i'm like day three and we're having you know just like in the army goldman's no different corporate america's no different i'm having issues getting on to certain programs on my computer so I, I can't do my job and one of the team leaders comes up and was like hey we've got this stuff we're gonna have to work this weekend i'm like I've given up a shitload of weekends. I had two young, my two daughters were, were young. I mean, like my younger daughter was like six, seven months old this time. I'm like, I'm not giving up my weekends. I've given up enough weekends in my life. I'm going to come up with a solution. I just always do one more thing. And then, uh, so, so I go to the, the team leaders have a meeting and I, they're like, Oh, we're going to have to work this weekend. We've got these issues. And you know, like these are, four or five years junior to me who've never led people. I'm like, Hey, I'm going to, if anything, if I can help mentor these people to be better leaders for these other 
my peers and and, and uh, other members of the team. Like, then I'm, I'm I can I'm I'm winning. I'm leveraging who I am for the team. Um, and so I was like, hey, hold on a sec. What program is this? And you know, the team was like, oh, it's blah blah blah. And I'm like, who controls access? And she's like, we do. It's like, so you can give me access. And she's like, yeah, I can give you access 100%. I was like, okay. Well, I've got nothing to do because there's other programs that I'm supposed to be doing. I don't have access. So, And then I helped resource load. And I was like, hey, if there was like 10 of us. Raise your hand if you're done with today's work. And, you know, like four people raised their hand. I was like, okay, how long does it take to figure this stuff out? Like, oh, like 20, 30 minutes and you'll be proficient. I was like, okay, well, there's five of us now. So let's redistribute the workload. It's Friday morning. Let's redistribute the workload and come back together at lunchtime. They, you know, they come, people go to lunch, come back together and they're like, all right, you know, the, the team leaders are looking at theirs because they've, you know, they've got other stuff that they're doing. They're like, oh, we're going to have to work this weekend. We're not done. I was like, hold on, time out. I'm done. Who here is not done with the, the workload you've got to do? And everybody's like, I'm done. I'm done. I'm done. All right. All right let's redistribute the workload. And let's get out of here. And, you know, my manager, my, some of the senior VPs are like, that's phenomenal. How do you know how to do that? How do you know how to step up? I'm like, that's what I did. Like, that was my job in the military was identify a solution or identify a problem, come up with a solution and task load to make it happen. Like, it wasn't, I, like, I didn't have to use too many brain cells to make it happen. Um, somewhere along the way, um you decide that uh, you want to get a master's degree in most yep. of engineering. Um, you only spent Goldman Sachs. I mean, obviously, I guess it just wasn't for you. Is it simple to say that? Yeah, it just wasn't a right cultural fit. Uh, but you end up at the Los Alamos National Laboratory. So, so w- w- what fascinated you about nuclear components and bomb making? Well, I, in, in all honesty, I started as a, I was running construction projects and, uh, Right. I, was, I felt like I was a national level asset, or maybe like a, at least on the JV team as a Green Beret, and I wanted to wanted to do more. And I just I kept meeting with other people who worked with SOC, who worked with other government agencies, who did all these other stuff at, at Los Alamos. And the resounding answer that I kept getting is like, Ben, that's great, you're a Green Beret, but you don't have a technical degree. I'm like, all right, well, I'll go get one. I'll prove to you that you know I can. Uh, I'm not just a, a pretty face, even though my grandma always told me I have a face for radio. But uh, um, I would, you know, so like I'm never going to let an obstacle stop me. So I'm like, all right, well, I'll prove to you. I'll go get a, I'll go get a master's degree. They're like, you need something in engineering. Why don't you go back and get a bachelor's? I'm like, I've already done a bachelor's, and because I went to West Point, I had a minor in, in mechanical engineering. I, I did physics. I did. I did calculus, I had discrete, discrete dynamical systems, thermodynamics. I had all the prerequisites for this um, explosive engineering program. I just hadn't, uh, I hadn't been in college for a while. And so I, I figured that would be the one that would, would set me up for success. And then while I was at, while I was a construction project manager, I, I volunteered to be the chairman of the veteran employee resource group at Los Alamos National Lab. And in doing so, I met the, he was a Naval Academy grad who was responsible for the pit mission, the uh, nuclear weapons mission at Los Alamos. And I impressed him with my, I guess my thought process and how I handled struggles and whatever. And he asked me to apply for the role. And so my last, my last job there was I was a manufacturing manager and we did the final assembly of nuclear weapons components at Los Alamos Special Lab. But, 
house. It's, and you know, no, by the way, I had four kids and I'm working a full-time job. And I, uh, so I just made it happen. Right? Like, uh, I, I prioritized my kids were young, so we could put them to bed and, you know, rather than go and relax, I'd go do some study and design uh, uh, an explosive blast to, or, you know, study explosives of how it handles water, whatever just made it happen. That's great. Here's a bottle of milk. I'm going to go build a bomb. I'll be back in 10 minutes. <laughs> yeah. It's not lost on me. Um, you know, after, and, and I neglected to mention, at least time-wise, chronologically, after you leave Goldman Sachs is when you start Sportsman for Warriors, right? You have this, this not- That's 100%. Yep. You want to start. Um, and, and you've echoed some of the sentiments about why you wanted to do it before yeah. kind of to give back, you know, uh, obviously all those who, who were there for you. But, you know, the, the kind of mission statement is what? Uh, to the off the record mission statement is give America back a better product than what they're getting when they leave the military. Right? Like men, these men and women have done phenomenal things that most people who've never served will never understand. And that skill set and, and and mindset change, if we can get them to change from post max stress to post max growth, like those things that you did fundamentally changed you, but in a good way. Like yes. You can, if you can get to like, hey, nobody in this boardroom is going to shoot at me and I can just be me and say whatever, then that corporation is going to get a tremendous amount of knowledge out of people. And um, so our our job was to employ, enrich, and engage. And uh, the enrichments were what we, what we took warriors out on. You know, we did everything from salmon fishing in alaska we took warriors on the tuna.com from uh wicked tuna on what, national geographic or nat nat geo or discovery channel uh we did two shark dives with great whites i mean the enrichment that was just the excuse to get people together and then and, and i think that's why i was so felt the need because i knew there were other programs that were out there they were taking warriors on hunts that were taking warriors on fishing trips or taking warriors doing cool stuff, but they didn't have the warrior element. And for us, it takes warrior to hill warrior. And so, you know, I kind of reached back in my back pocket, like, okay, I've got this person for 24 hours or 48 hours or however long I've got them. How, how can I accelerate? How can I go, you know, to use kind of something that everybody will, how do I go from first date to, now we're talking about getting married in this short period of time. Well, how do you how do you build bonds? How do you build relationships? You put like-minded people together. So, you know, and we we went all exclusively off of um, nominations. So, like, if I get a uh, say a young Marine infantryman from who is in Fallujah, all right, now I'm going to start reaching out to other people. You know, maybe somebody donates. All right, you can bring five. Five warriors on the sand fishing trip. Okay. Now I'm going to find other people who have similar situations. So like you were in Ramadi in 2006. I was in Ramadi in 2006, right? Like that might be the two. I, I might put us two together on an event because now we're going to be, oh, you were at Krigador. I was at, I was at Blue Diamond or, you know, um, whatever outpost. Now we, now we have this connection. Now we can go much faster in this acceleration and then it's just having those conversations and you know a lot of it was me opening up and talking about things but i would know whether i had the conversation or other of my team would have conversations i would kind of know this person and i would know like okay 
this person's issue is they were blown up their IED. Okay. Or man, this person's been in a tremendous amount of con contact. I can like tell all my stories to get them to start talking more. Okay. This person's an I okay, now I need to use an ID because right up as a green bray, I, I've been in a lot of firefights. Like I can't it's having that balance of like open up, showing my vulnerability, but not saying too much to be like, Oh, I didn't do anything, you know? And some people feel that way, like, oh, well, I was just a, I was just a fueler. I was just a, I was a mechanic on whatever. And like we, we met this guy at, at one of our fundraisers. He went signal. He was a young enlisted signal guy working at a fob because his mom and I think his mom and stepdad, if I remember correctly, um, didn't want him to go outside the wire and have him be killed. Well, what happens? He's he's on an outpost. Mortar lands right at his feet, takes his legs off. I mean, he's a above the knee amputee, right? Because he did what his parents want because he wanted to be safe, right? Like, does that negate that dude's story? Not at all. But this guy gets to live with those things. And I mean, he's at like the hip level amputation. And oh. um, so it's just, it's just having those, you know, the, the balance. And, and from what I learned working and, you know, I, I, again, I was read on their program so I could talk to a guy about what he did, um, but he was going through a program. I'm like, okay, I'm going to leverage that experience. And I'm going to, you know, talk. And then I started studying uh, the native warring tribes. I started studying, okay, what what's the difference between World War One and World War Two and Vietnam and Korea? To fast forward to now, Iraq 2.0 or Afghanistan, what's the difference? Okay, it's talking, you know, like, the World War II veterans, they came back on boats, you know, and they got to talk through everything, right? Like they, they laughed, they cried, they did all that stuff because they're on a boat for six weeks. What else do they have to do? And so I'm like, if those guys who are really kind of the, the gold standard for how veterans should be, let's do that. And then, you know, talking with the Vietnam veterans, you know, like, man, I, I couldn't talk because either I'd be called, I'd spit on, I'd be called a baby killer. I'd talk to my, my dad, who was a World War II veteran, and just tell me to suck it up. But not knowing that um, he had he had worked through those same exact issues because he was on a boat, and nowadays it's like you can go from Iraq or Afghanistan and be back in the states in twenty four hours. There's no decompression. There's none of that. So how do we fix that? And so just trying to you know piecemeal all these different things. And I'm not a psychologist, but I know people. I know how to lead people, uh, and kind of coming up with a you know just like a good young team leader and squad leader, infantry squad leader would do or good NCO in the army would do like, okay, here's your problem. Let's do counseling. Let's come up with a 30, 60, 90 day plan for you. Same exact thing. And you know what, what people don't realize, and you know, it gets into our other pillars. It's you might interview me for a job and I might say everything right, but there's just something like, I don't know what it is about Ben. There's just something off. And maybe, you know, subconsciously I'm thinking about during this interview, I'm thinking about like, Oh man, you know, it, it bring it reminds me of, you know, when my guys were killed or whatever. And so I might be projecting something subconsciously that you pick up on. You don't know what it is. And you're like, nah, let's pass on Ben. He, he had good answers, but there's just something I don't quite feel right. And so it, again, it's, we're trying to get, fix these warriors and educate them. And then, you know, at the end of each mission, I'd ask basically a few simple things like pay it forward. Like, if you know another brother or sister in arms, either help out, you know, reach out to them, have those conversations or nominate them to us, a nonprofit, if you think we did good, 
or other nonprofits that help them out. And then be, be that, like find your new why, find your new purpose, find your new mission, because a lot of veterans struggle with that. Mm-hmm. And then whatever that is, be the best you can be, like be all you can be. So like if, if you're a soccer coach, or like little league soccer, and go be that so that everybody's like, man, Ben's a phenomenal soccer coach. He like, he teaches differently. There's something different about him. And they're like, oh, did you know he's a veteran? Rather than veteran coming up in a negative connotation, having veteran come up as a positive thing. So now we're setting a good example and society's like seeing, here's something counter to what the news is saying of we're all broken toys, right? Like here's a functioning member or run, start a business, or run for office or whatever it is that like, that's, that's your, you go do it and be, do the best use of so America continues to get a great product because everything you learn in combat benefits you. Yeah. Um, very well said. Uh, a lot of stuff that we've echoed before. I'm, I'm curious though. I, I've been holding on to this since you mentioned it and I want to go back to it because it transitions well into what sportsman for warriors does. Um, you mentioned losing two of your guys is one of the darkest days of your life or the darkest day of your life. Um, Two-part question, uh, what made it so dark and, and how is Sportsman for Warriors or at least the idea of what you're trying to do helped you deal with that? Yeah, so, you know, it's a, it's a deep question. So I, I felt I failed, right? Like I lost my guys. I felt I failed. You know, looking back and everyone armchair quarterbacks themselves and tries to look, you know, and it, it it's – and again, this is what we teach in the nonprofits. Like I know the answer because I've already been through it. I have to go back to what did I do leading up to it? And so quick story. It was out on a road that I refused to ever go on. My battalion commander was coming back from uh, whatever battalion command briefing. They hit an IED. It was an area that we knew and why I refused to go on it was we knew there were IDs because it was a blind spot for us. And, you know, we were the nearest element. I'm, com- I'm cor- conor- uh, coordinating between his element and my element because, and I'm talking to um, the the com- our, our battalion talk for a little while, and um, my guys go out and they hit an ID, and two guys are killed instantly. And I just felt for a long time that it was my fault. Their lives were was my fault, and you know, like. And I would always hear people afterwards say like, yeah, I went to combat. I didn't lose a guy because I'm awesome. You know, like it, it angered me for a while. God. And, you know, like, I, I mean, I wasn't openly advertising. I lost two guys. Um, but it, it's just one of those things where you're like, okay, well, I know the stuff I was in. But I worked through it, right? Like I could have quit. I could have gone and volunteered to be the XO. And they would put somebody else in my, my job. But I didn't. You know, I went back and I AR, okay. Yes, we knew it was bad. I had the conversation with those guys. Like, drive slow. If something feels wrong, stop. You know, all those things. But, you know, there's, again, there's greater power um, that's in control. I, you know, I'm, I'm a devout Christian. And I, I was proved to in life that um, I'm here talking to you because, like, when my squadron got shot on December 4th, I should have got shot. Fast forward, you know, I come back to Firebase couple hours later or a couple weeks later and I have a message that my grandfather died and I later like five, six years later, actually no, it was out it was after I was out of the army. I went back and I I did the time conversion and when I was ambushed was about the same time my, my grandfather was uh he passed away. So 
I guess God had felt that like my family had already lost one person then shit was two on the same day. And then, um, yeah, so I worked through that and, um, my, my oldest son's named after the two guys I lost, Rowan and Travis. And I think I probably used the nonprofit, but I wanted to help people. I want to give back. I wanted to, to show people it's okay. Right? I, I cry on, I cry on, you know, uh, enrichments. I, you know, I open up, I, I show everything. I talk to people and I don't hold back. And whether it's a, a public speaking event or whatever, I, you know, I'm, I'm unfiltered. I'm not politically correct. I, I tell the truth how I see it. And, and uh, I try to, I try to give people the, the real honest truth and the, the warrior way for other warriors. I try to, you know, I want, I see national security issues in our country, whether it's education, whether it's the control of, you know, three companies that control 88% of the financial of the S and P 500, whether it's the out of touch uh, octogenarians that are ruling our country or not ruling, maybe that's not the right term, but making decisions for our country. All these things are national security issues and the second, third order effects we're all facing from them. And I'm trying to give America a better product and, and in a small way, help, you know, the whole analogy of the, the boy who's throwing the crabs back in the ocean. His grandfather says, why are you doing that? You can't save them all. And he says, no, but for the ones I can save, it's everything. And there's the same way. Will we save everybody? No. I mean, we lost a guy who had gone through one of our things on, on the suicide, but you know, we've saved people. We've had people who, you know, were ready to do it and they just happened to get nominated and we changed their lives. I mean, we've saved marriages. It's for that one person and their sphere of influence. If I can save that one person, I mean, I'll move heaven and earth to make it happen. Just like, what others did for me in Iraq and, and in other deployments and other training events. Where are you with it all now? I mean, do you, do you have a certain level of peace with it? I, I have, I've, you know, I've come to grips. I think, you know, um, like talking with Travis's mom, I think it was 2012. I, I was always scared to call. And so finally on, on the anniversary, I called her. She said, Ben, it wasn't your fault. It was God's plan. He, he needed Travis's uh, sense of humor. And, you know, it's the same thing. Like I can think about the horrific aspects of those days, but instead I, I forced myself to think of the positive things. Like I remember uh, Travis, yeah, he always wanted to, he would always like before, I didn't know it at the time. I just remember he'd fall out of PT, um, but he would fall out of PT when it was platoon PT when I was leading it because every night before he'd do a 12 pack of button. Budweiser, he called the Budweiser Challenge. He drink a twelve pack and show the PT drunk, and then you know do the best he could. And so I try to remember those things. Or I remember like the day I met Rowan. He was my medic. Um, we were at NTC. You know, obviously we were undermanned. And I walk in, and I, I had just got like my new platoon sergeant. It was my third platoon sergeant at the time, and I'd been a platoon leader for like almost three months at the time. And I walk in and. He, and my platoon says, hey, you come meet the medic. You just got here. And I walk up and he's got his cot and he's trying to give himself an IV in the hand. He's bleeding all over the place. He's like, stop. Stop. So he's doing it. He's like, his hand's still bleeding because he has the tourniquet on. And he's trying to give himself an IV. And he's like, 
hey, he like stands up to shake my hands, like finish what you're doing, man. Like <laughs> you're crazy. But that that was him. That was Rome. And so that's why I was trying to um that's why I tried to embody um in the you know uh, on this transparency. So I also had a brother who passed away who had muscular history who when he passed away when I was 10, I remember one of the last memories I had of him was my parents had a, a a van that had a ramp lift. I remember that for some reason it wouldn't start. He wanted to go to school. And um, so he drove to school in the rain with my mom or my mom walked with him to school. He was in junior high and in the rain, he made it to school because that's what I wanted to do. So when I was at selection and I was cold or tired or hungry, I remember back to either my brother or, you know, Rowan had wanted to, when we got back from, um, from Iraq, he wanted to go be a 18 Delta, right? And the special force. Event. I always tease him. I was like, they're going to make you a Bravo because you've already got medical skills. You're cross trained. You're going to be a Bravo. And then uh, Travis wanted to go ranger school. So I always remember, you know, when I was feeling tired or I didn't have energy at selection, I just think back to the positives of those guys. Like, I'm not just doing this for me. I'm doing this for, you know, when I graduated the Q course and finally donned that Green Beret, it wasn't, I put it on not just for me. There were so many others that I I put it on for. um, I try to just continue to continue to do that mission today. It's the best way to honor them. Yeah, exactly. Objectively. Because, you know, they say people die when people stop saying the name and you know my son gets uh we say their names every day sometimes multiple times a day yeah i I think it's it's fitting Uh, you know and and part of the one one of the things that you know recurring themes that comes up is i always ask about those folks because they they deserve to be heard you know their voices or but that doesn't mean we have and you know the the sad part of society is they only want to talk about seals and special operations and they only want to but you know the, the people i respect the most are like the louis i always say louisiana i don't know why louisiana national guard i should probably say new mexico national guard since we're 51st in the nation education but those people who raise their right hand because um, they wanted wanted to do something they wanted to serve and they go out in combat they don't have all the assets stacked. they don't have all the resources they don't have the best equipment because, you know, either the state doesn't have money or whatever, but you know what they go on then they do missions and they do the best of their training and experience. And it, they're all part of the team, right? Like we have the surgical units who are going out and taking out the head of the snake, but we need the other guys and gals to take out the ID and placers and those things. And it's all part of the bigger mission. Never I'm at Fort Stewart because uh, I'm here in Atlanta and I have to go down to Stewart for training events and things of that nature. I, I don't always get to do it, but, you know, at, at a minimum once every six months, whether I take my soldiers with me or I just go alone. But they have these walks where they planted all these trees for all the three ID soldiers who were who were killed in action. Um, and I even took my kids there once um, and walked with them. Um, my guys are on that list. They're on one of those. Yeah. Because uh, we were attached to third ID. Oh, really? Yeah. Wow, uh, I'll have to go check out the the trees in their honor, and and which is it's always just striking me, you know. Just I, I just like to read the names and see what people leave behind, and you know, just remember that that you know there were so many people who who you know made the ultimate sacrifice. It's it's so touching and moving. It's emotional for me, and I didn't even know some of these folks, so I can only imagine if if I did know them, how how difficult it would be. Well, and you know, we 
we, we talk about that and people always say like, what is it? You know, like people often reference like sports and I, I give sports analogies because it, it's often different. Like I always say I'm the quarterback, give me the ball, I'll get in the end zone. Right. Cause most civilians understand that, but like it's the little things that will change things. Like, like, you know, we're in, a, we're in, we're in engagement in Iraq and, you know, like we're facing significant enemy and like, Hey guys, I'll come on the net and Hey, Apaches are in down and it just changes people or Hey, QRF's in down. Why? Because um, it's just showing and it, people know that like, okay, somebody's coming to help. Somebody's coming to our aid and the impact that that has, like knowing, you know, like, yeah, my guys died going out on the, on the medevac, Kazavac type of, of mission. But my guys would continue to do that because they know somebody else will come for them if they're ever blown up or they're ever there, you know, unless it's immediate, we're going to do all we can. I'm going to move heaven and earth to make sure they get a chance and we're going to fight to make sure they come home. Great message. Uh, love and um, I, I think, you know, uh, in, in general, just the, the, the processing of it that you've all done is is reflective of, you know, I think what some of your nonprofit is about, um, but it's also a process that a lot of people can emulate and use. So, hundred uh, percent. And if if people want to, you know, talk to me, I'll, I'll I'll give them the secret sauce. It's not it's not that challenging. But also, you know, the 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 lesser known one was we're trying to bridge that civil military divide, that civil military gap. You don't have to have ever served to understand combat, and you'll never fully understand. I mean, there's situations I'm like, man, I'm. I, I mean, I've been in engagements. So it's like, man, that's that's some crazy stuff you did. But it's like, how hard is it to look at a map and see where Iraq is? How hard is it to look at a map and see where Afghanistan is? Like, you don't have to memorize it. Like, if you look at Afghanistan, you don't have to memorize it and be like, oh, here's Kabul, here's Kandahar, here's whatever. It's, okay, I don't know where that was. Where were you? Oh, you're in the south. Were you, how far were you from Pakistan? Oh, you're in the east. How far were you from Pakistan? Oh, you're in the north. Were you closer to Afghanistan? Or were you closer to Tajikistan? Or were you closer to Iran? Right? Like, having that would fundamentally change that conversation would fundamentally change um, somebody's mind. Be like, wow, this person, here's that American is not that stereotypical, ugly American. They've looked at a map and they at least can find Afghanistan on the map. And it, I bet if they could go back, they could see it. And I think that's a, the challenge. And then, um, and I know we're short on time, but having people want to fundamentally change the questions they ask, like, what's it like to get shot at or what's it like to kill somebody? Cause everybody wants to have this conversation. It's like, what was it like being away for Christmas? Right? Like those are, I mean, I always, again, I'm, I'm not the most PC person. So I always tell people like, well, you would never ask a person what, what it's like when they get, when they were raped or when they lost their child, why would you ask somebody something that's that uh, significant to them? Because it can change things. And I was, you know, it's, and again, this goes to the engagement of, okay, say you and I have a conversation, right? You ask me what's it like to kill somebody. And either A, now I feel like you pulled my man card. And I'm like, oh, shit, what do I do? And so I say something and like, well, I think Ben lied there. You know, maybe I'm uncomfortable with it. Or maybe I haven't fully processed it. And now I'm going to start processing, processing it. And, you know, maybe it's like, you know, I, I had a, one of my real good friends from high school, he always teased me because I was in JRTC 
but after 9-11 he joined up he went he was an infantryman in uh, 10th mountain he went to afghanistan and the afghans or taliban or al-qaeda whoever it was put a suicide vest on a young girl he shot her because he was protecting his squad but he always lived with it and that's what ended up why he took his life because when you're out of that situation you know like the people who go into the military go into it and our values are getting enhanced it's a certain demographic of people and i'm not saying race it's the demographic of people who have beliefs you know like i'm gonna fight for those who aren't strong enough to fight for themselves i'm gonna protect women as a man because that not because of because that's why i believe that's how i was raised and so now you have this person who you know, might have shot a young girl and they feel they're okay with it at the time, but they get away from that element, they get away from that organization. And now they have this um this debt on their life. They have this dark spot where they forget why they did it. They forget about their brothers to their and sisters to the left, their right. They just remember I killed a girl. And it goes back to their values and their they feel violated and just eats at them and eats at them and eats at them. And the average person doesn't understand like, okay, why, what, I don't understand. Like you did it, you know, it's whatever. I mean, shit, we were on a, on a retreat in Alaska and I was talking about, you know, shooting a young boy with an RPG. The dude that I had taken had done that and that was his thing. And it just like, it broke him. And so it's like, and, and I was just talking, we were having a dinner conversation about, you know, like stuff that you see, like, like that the enemy's going to take, try to take advantage of that, of any weakness they can. So using young boys and girls as, as cannon fodder, if you will, or uh, as enemy combatants. Um, but it's, there's no simple solution to this. There's no blue pill or red pill that you can take or green pill, you know, and, and we work, we try to work in conjunction with the VA, but, you know, we, I also try, I spend as much of my time reaching out to people who never should and try to have those conversations with them. I'm saying, like, don't ask this because, you know, for the reason that I just mentioned, they could cause a person to do that. And you know what? If you talk to them, like, what's it like? What's it really like in combat? Like, how was it being away for Christmas? How was it being away? Like, you'll build rapport with people. And then eventually somebody might say, yeah, you know, like, so there we were. Just listen. Don't ask conversations. Don't ask questions. Just listen. Because that person can have as much of um, an impact on that person's life as, you know, somebody like me or you, a fellow warrior. But you just have to have patience and know, like, if if you never have a conversation, you never have a conversation. But learn learn all you can about the person. Learn about their deployment. And if they ever feel comfortable and trust you, they'll open up and, and talk to you. Or what I tell a lot of wives, and, you know, I'm guilty of this. I don't tell my wife as much stuff. I mean, I think she's probably heard all of my stories through me talking with other like people that I served with. But it's just like, be okay not ever hearing all the stories. Be okay. It's not that they're hiding stuff, right? It's especially men. Men is you know, like the protectors and, you know, the warriors were supposed to be the leaders of the family and sell those examples. It's hard for us to like take our armor off and show our flaws and show our weaknesses. And not only that, I mean, heck, there was stuff I didn't even remember until I actually sat down with a VA psychologist. Like it's sort of pouring out and stuff that I hadn't even thought about in years uh, happened, but I, I was, <laughs> Or that uh, when I got back to my first deployment, my cousin who's a teacher 
asked me to meet with her school. This is, you know, 06, you know, so it's an early part of the and I think it was a you know five or six years old, and and and, and watch a five year old raise their hand and stand up and ask you in front of a room of people, "Have you ever shot anybody?" Uh, and and how you're supposed to wiggle your way out of that one? Um, yeah, uh, you're you're not prepared to answer that question, uh, to say, especially not from somebody so young. When your buddies answer, yeah. you shut up. You know you can't tell a five year old room full of people without coming off like a jerk. So uh, I, I I could certainly sympathize and empathize with the uh, with the difficulty of that question and and what it what it can do to you. Um, but again, the, the website for everybody out there, sportsmenforwarriors.org, and it's M-E-N, not M-A-M, sportsmenforwarriors.org is where you guys can go. You can support, you can donate, um, uh, offer to be a volunteer, and, and obviously, if you know anybody needs to help, make sure you guys have them reach out there and nominate somebody for uh, uh, for assistance. So, uh, I mean, look, man, we, we've almost gone two hours and it's flown by uh, and it's always a good sign because there was a lot of good things said and a lot of topics touched that, uh, that a lot of people need to hear. Uh, I am, I'm glad that you are in a better place mentally for your own self. I'm glad that Sportsman for Warriors is making the impact that it is. And, and it's a way that, uh, you know, to give back to veterans and, you know, I, I, I volunteer and work with veterans uh, once a week. I work with a nonprofit as well. And I only do it just to keep, close to other veterans, right? It's just to be in, be in a group of like-minded people and, and, you know, people who understand you where you don't have to say much, they just get it. And there's a certain comfort in that. And so uh, I'm glad you're bringing that level of comfort out to the forefront for a lot of us. Yeah, no, I, I appreciate you giving me the opportunity to, to talk about me more so about, you know, the organizations that, that I, I've worked with and continue to support. And again, you know, like it's time, talent, money. So whether it's hunting or fishing or whatever, um, we'll, we'll not say no because there's always there's always warriors in need. And um, again, I'm, I'm truly grateful to be on this. And yeah, you're right. Like everybody, everybody needs something different. And um, we we take each warrior, each nomination we get on a case by case, and we kind of adapt and come up with a plan for that individual warrior. And then we adjust and, you know, we'll, we've had hard conversations where like, hey, you should go to the VA and maybe you need some medicine just to get through this stuff. But we've also had those same hard conversation, the flip side of that of like, hey, maybe you need to go to the VA and say, this stuff's not working. I'm, I'm just drooling and I can't, I'm never going to overcome this in this state. So, Well, again, continued success. Yeah. Uh, and if you're ever coming through the Atlanta area, make sure you look me up and. Uh, yeah, we'll do. Definitely. And. Uh, you could take me hunting or fishing, two things that I <laughs> guy. So I'm from New York, so you know thinking fishing is, you know if I need fish at the supermarket. If I want meat, yeah. right, I'll go to the Yeah, so, but we're teaching them, right? Like you give no, a man I'm... a fish, you're feeding for a day. Teach a man to fish, you're feeding for a lifetime. Keep telling people though, if I go hunting, I, I wanna find something, pursue it and kill it. I don't wanna sit and wait. That's called waiting. I wanna yeah. sit called waiting. It's not called hunting. That's yeah, you know, I, I always teach the kids that like that's why it's called fishing, not catching. Because <laughs> you don't always. So. There's life. There's life lessons to be taught in everything we do. Oh, brother! Excellent stuff. Well, again, thank you for your time, Candor and Thank you. Continued success going forward. And Ben Bateman, thanks for being part of the Hazard Ground. You've been listening to the Hazard Ground podcast, hosted by Mark Zeno. If you have an interesting story to tell and you'd like to be on the show, send us an email at producer at hazardground.com. And if you like the show, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts. Thanks for listening.
We'll see you next time. 